This podcast is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. We're speaking of the power of suffering to sanctify us, and we deal at some length with the subject of sanctification. We began our discussion of that last week and began too to discuss the relationship between justification and sanctification. Sanctification is an extremely important work of God. I know we have to talk about the doctrine of sanctification and the biblical teaching of sanctification But I do not want you in any way to consider this subject only academically, only intellectually, only as far as the meaning of the word and the meaning of the work is concerned. Sanctification is a marvelous, marvelous work of God. As we hope to notice tonight, Sanctification begins at that moment when God regenerates us. It continues all through life. It does not end until Christ comes back again on the clouds of heaven and raises our bodies. The resurrection of our bodies is also a part of sanctification. It is therefore a lifelong process. It is a process that begins in the hearts of the children of the covenant before birth in most instances. And it manifests itself in the life of the child of God as he walks in the world as a member of God's covenant and as representing in this world of sin and darkness the cause of the kingdom of Jesus Christ Sanctification makes the antithesis possible. Sanctification is, in reality, the antithesis in our hearts. An antithesis that begins, in fact, in our own natures. We hope to talk about that a little bit more next time, but I want to emphasize now that this is an important subject for us from an extremely practical point of view. I also want to be at pains to remind you of the fact that we're talking about the relationship between the suffering which the people of God are called upon to endure in this world and the work of God in sanctification. I dare say that God uses suffering as the primary means of sanctification after that special means of grace which we call the preaching of the gospel. The preaching of the gospel is, of course, the primary fundamental means of grace. Sanctification depends upon the preaching of the gospel. Sanctification as it is worked in our hearts 
depends upon the preaching of the gospel. And our calling to walk sanctified lives depends upon the power and force of the preaching of the gospel. In so far as the gospel is preached to us, we understand our calling as the sanctified people of God to walk in a sanctified life. But preaching also, and above all, explains to us, as the word of God is expounded, how precisely suffering serves the purpose of sanctifying us. Suffering would never sanctify us if it were not for the preaching of the gospel and for the explanation of the word of God that makes the relationship between suffering and sanctification clear. That relationship occupies a considerable amount of time for every minister of the word. In almost all of his pastoral work, he is busy and must be busy explaining to the people of God why the sufferings which God calls them to endure are necessary, important for their good and lead to their salvation. When the people of God lay hold on that by faith, the sufferings of this present time become to them in themselves a blessing and we can begin to understand a bit of what Paul means when in Ephesians he admonishes the Ephesians Christian the Ephesian Christians to be thankful for all things i recall i was very much troubled by that idea when in the early part of my ministry, I was working on a Thanksgiving sermon and I was dealing with a text in Philippians where the Apostle Paul writes to the Philippians, we must be thankful in all things. I could understand that. I could bring that word of God confidently to the people of God. In all things, in whatever your pathway in life may be, you must be thankful. And I recall even breathing a silent prayer of thanksgiving that the apostle did not use the word for in this passage in Philippians because then I would be stuck. Thankful in all things, yes, even in suffering. Thankful for all things, that seemed to me spiritually impossible. And then I came across that passage in Ephesians and I scrambled for my lexicon because I could not imagine that the translation was correct. But there it was, inescapably true. Paul says, be thankful for all things. For suffering, Paul, I said all things, did I not? And suffering is a major part of the life of the child of God. Be thankful for it. That defied my imagination and 
my ability to understand the word of God. But when we come to see that sufferings are necessary, important in the plan of God and in his purpose in our lives for our sanctification, then of course we want to be sanctified, don't we? Naturally, sanctification is the desire of every child of God. Having said that, I want to return momentarily to the difference, the important difference between justification and sanctification. And I'm going to jot down a few things here on the board so that we may be clear on that. I'm going to have to be very brief. I can't take the time to explain all these things as much as I would like, but maybe this will help you remember. The distinction between these two works of God is so extremely important because the distinction between them was precisely what the Lutheran Reformation was all about. The Roman Catholic Church, and I'll come back to that in a little while, confused these two, made no distinction between them, and interpreted justification as being the same thing as sanctification. Luther talked about justification being imputation. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to us, that is, reckoned to our account. Sanctification is infused, that is, infused in our hearts, wrought and worked in our hearts. Justification has to do with our state, and by state now I mean our legal status before God, who is, as Abraham expresses it in his prayer for Sodom, the judge of all the earth who always judges right. State has to do with our legal status. Sanctification has to do with our condition. What kind of people are we? Not our legal position, but our condition. It's the difference, you see, between a man who is in prison for a crime being declared by the judge to be innocent, probably because the debt for which he was imprisoned was paid by someone else, or because he, he served his sentence and therefore fulfilled the demands of the law. While condition is this same man either in prison yet or walking the streets as a free man. Supposing he was in prison for 20 years. Supposing that he was there because his legal status was one of guilt. He had committed a crime. So he was imprisoned. Maybe he was imprisoned after he was found guilty. That happens sometimes. A prisoner is let free on bond until his sentence has been decided, even though he's guilty. But then he's imprisoned, so his condition is one of imprisonment. After he fulfills his sentence or he is 
deemed worthy of release for one reason or another, maybe the jails are packed. His legal status is changed to one of innocence, but he's still in jail, so his condition is still one of imprisonment. So th these refer to two different things. Justification has to do with our legal status before God. Condition has to do with what God has made us or will make us. Now because this is the true, the, the, the situation, justification is the ground for sanctification. I think that's important to remember. If a judge declares a prisoner innocent, even though he may be in prison, he has got to let that man go. He can't let him sit in prison even though he has been legally declared to be innocent. So God, having declared his people to be without sin because of the merits of Christ, must, in the nature of the case, in harmony with his own justice, deliver his people from the bondage of sin. He cannot justify them without sanctifying them. And as we'll see, this is one of the errors, for example, of the antinomians. They claim that they are justified, but not sanctified. Before God, and in the eyes of God, that's an impossibility. All of these, justification and sanctification, take place through Christ. Justification is what Christ does for us. Sanctification is what Christ does in us. This is what he accomplished on the cross. This is what he works in us by his Holy Spirit. 2,000 years ago, when Christ completed his work on the cross and paid for sin, your sins and my sins were gone. We weren't even born yet. We hadn't done any good or evil. But Christ died for us, and those sins exist no longer. When we are born, Christ works in us the work of sanctification. Now that both of these are the work of Christ is possible because justification is in Christ by virtue of Christ being our federal head. And sanctification takes place in us by virtue of the fact that Christ is our organic head. Now let me explain that a, a few moments because I consider this to be extraordinarily important. This idea of federal headship and organic headship is as old as the Reformation and was a point that was emphasized from the Reformation on, although this idea of Christ as our federal head did not really come to its own in the history of the Reformed churches until the Synod of Dort. And even there, uh, 
not with all of its implications. Some of the men at the Synod of Dort were already beginning to develop the idea that Christ is our federal head. Among those who were doing this was Gomaris, Gomaris, who was uh, nicknamed the major crabby delegate of the Synod of Dort. He was a man who taught this idea of federalism, and there were a few others. What it means is this, that Christ as our federal head represented us. The best way to understand that is to remember that Adam in paradise was also the federal head of the whole human race. And that was because Adam in paradise represented the entire human race as the federal head. By representing, I mean what Adam did in paradise was the responsibility of the whole human race because he did it as their head. So when Adam fell, the guilt of his fall was imputed. Here you come back to imputation. Imputed to the whole human race. And total depravity, which has to do with our condition, was the punishment of God upon the human race because of the guilt of their sin in Adam. That's why we're born totally depraved. When David prays, for example, in Psalm 51, Behold, I was conceived in iniquity and born in sin. He's not using that as an excuse to get from underneath the responsibility for his adultery with Bathsheba. He's saying, it's my fault that I was conceived in iniquity and born in sin because of the guilt of my father, Adam. So that's the idea. Now Christ becomes the representative head of his people. And you know, while this was woven into the very warp and woof of Reformed theology throughout the long centuries since, say, since Dordan, you don't find this doctrine taught anymore, anywhere. You can't even understand the Heidelberg Catechism unless you have a conception of this. Lord's Day 3, for example, that talks about the fall of Adam and our depravity. Lord's Day 4, does God do injustice to man when he demands of man that which he cannot perform? Isn't that unjust? No, why not? Well, because we're guilty in Adam, that's why. The whole of the Heidelberg Catechism, although I think unconsciously, is built on this idea of federal headship. And so Christ is the federal head of his people so that when he died on the cross, that which he did is as if we did it. Our communion form has a, has a beautiful way of putting that. And every time I, I read that form, I'm impressed again with uh, the insight that our fathers had. It's under the second part, I think. Yeah, second heading of what true examination involves. Secondly, that everyone examine his own heart whether he doth believe this faithful promise of God, 
that all his sins are forgiven him only for the sake of the passion and death of Jesus Christ, and that the perfect righteousness of Christ is imputed and freely given him as his own. And then what I refer to, yea, so perfectly as if he had satisfied in his own person for all his sins. It's as if I did it when Christ died on the cross. I know it's as if I did it when Adam fell. Justification means the righteousness of Christ is imputed because he is my federal head and it is therefore as if I in my own person satisfied God's justice for all my sins and fulfilled all righteousness. That's a beautiful expression in the communion form for, for this idea of federal headship. On the other hand, that Christ is our organic head means that we are united to Christ by faith and are members of his body. This happens after we are born, at the moment of regeneration. This happened 2,000 years ago, before I was born. This is wrought in us by the Holy Spirit so that we are, in fact, by faith, united to Christ and become with him one body. He is our organic head. That beautiful passage in Galatians that has almost become the, the, the motto of my own life. It's a text I carry with me frequently and recite for myself over and over again. Refers to both of these. Text goes like this, as you will recall. I am crucified with Christ. Ah. There you have it. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. I live. There's this. And the life I live now in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm crucified with Christ. I died with him. I died when he died. I was buried when he was laid in Joseph's garden. I rose with him when he arose. And now, by his Holy Spirit, he makes me alive, not only as my representative head, but as a member of his body, in fact. But this is true and possible only because of this. I remember when I preached on that text once, I made the remark at the very beginning of the sermon by way of introduction and angered some people too that there was a spiritual, I think it is, which I don't like very well and never did like, which goes something like this. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they laid him in the grave? Were you there when he rose up from the dead? I don't even know what that means. Were you there? I suppose 
when they crucified my Lord, I was there all right, represented by the wicked Jews and by Pontius Pilate and represented by that motley mob that mocked him, I suppose, because that's the character of my sin too. But that isn't the question which the child of God asks. He never asks the question, were you there? Because he could have been there only in some very imaginative way. The question is, and that's the question which means so much to the child of God, were you in Christ? Were you in Christ when he died on the cross? Were you in Christ when they laid him in the grave? Were you in Christ when they raised him from the dead? That's Paul in, in Romans 7, at Romans 6. Now, this is eternal, as we said last week. This takes place in time. Eternally, God sees his people as righteous. That's Romans 8, verse 1, which Ryan read a moment ago. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. And then Paul adds the idea of sanctification, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. And that's this. You see, he moves from this to this. And that's characteristic of the scriptures. That happens again and again. My faith and your faith says, I belong to Christ. That's my only comfort in life and death. That I belong to him means that he is my federal head. I belonged to him eternally in the decree of election. I belonged to him when he died on Calvary. I did. I appropriate that by faith. When John, in his own inimitable way, says at the time of the foot washing, and having loved his own, he loved them to the end. He loved me. And he loved me to the end. That's a wonder. That's what the believer appropriates by faith. He loved me. I belong to him. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me, loved me, and gave himself for me. Loved me when he gave himself for me. And so I live. Now, in the flesh. That life is the life of Christ. That's sanctification. Now let me just take a minute or two to relate this to suffering. I made quite a point of it last time and I hope to do that again two weeks from tonight, the Lord willing. Relate the sufferings of the people of God to the suffering of Christ. I'm almost hesitant to do this because it is a thought which strikes me as being something of which we think very little. I mean this, 
And I say this to you tonight only because I have pondered this again and again and again over the course of at least the last two years. And I'm convinced that this is the teaching of Scripture. Because Christ is our federal head and we are in him federally as we were in Adam. And because Christ is our organic head who binds us to himself and to his own body by faith, all the suffering which Christ endured on the cross, we also suffer. Not as far as the intensity of it is concerned, not as far as the extent of it is concerned, but as far as the nature and character of it is concerned, Christ did not suffer one whit differently from our sufferings that we are called to endure in the midst of this world. Or, if I may put it a little differently, we suffer in this world because we belong to Christ. And that's, of course, our comfort immediately, too. We don't suffer in this world because we belong to Adam. Not anymore. We don't belong to Adam anymore. We belong to Christ. We suffer in this world because we belong to Christ. Let me just make that point a moment in a few instances. Christ was persecuted. We are too. Christ was crucified because of the hatred of, well, shall I say it? Yes, the church. The church at its best. Church of his own day, we are too. We are killed by the church. That's the whore drunk with the blood of the saints that you read of in Revelation 17. Christ himself said that. They have hated you. They have hated me. They will hate you also. He told his disciples of that. We share in and are a part of the suffering that Christ endured when he was persecuted. Our suffering because of our sins is a suffering which Christ endured too. Sin, and this is what I mean now, I don't mean that he bore the wrath of God against sin, because he did, but I mean the suffering that sin brings upon us as sanctified people of God the despair and hopelessness sometimes that comes over us because of our sin, the incessant battle with sin, the troubling presence of sin in our lives that makes us so anguished in the dark hours of the night as our sins haunt us. We're characteristic of Christ, who, though he had no sin of his own, nevertheless, knew what it was to fight sin. There is that stirring passage in Hebrews 4, the very end of the chapter, where the, where the author of the epistle to the Hebrews says to us, let us hold fast our profession, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. 
Christ was tempted in all points as we are. I remember when I was going to college, I heard Reverend Hooksma preach on that text, verse 16, 2. And he introduced his sermon with these memorable words. Beloved, he said, this is such a profound text and so beautiful that I almost feel like reading it over for you three or four times and then going home. I really don't know what to say about it. And then he went on, of course, and preached a marvelous sermon on that very text. But the point of the whole text is this, that we in our temptations, who suffer so intensely because of them and the battle against them, may come to Christ boldly to our high priest because he understands He's a sympathetic high priest. We must not think of him as one who was never touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He was. He knew what it meant to be tempted. He knew the suffering that temptation entailed. It was not as if suffering was, temptation was water off his back as it is off the back of a duck. It wasn't as if when he was in the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights and wrestled with Satan that he could dismiss all of these temptations with a snap of the fingers because there was nothing about them that bothered him in any respect. No, no, he understands. He never fell. He never sinned. But he knew what it was to be tempted. I remember... I have to tell you this story a minute. I, I remember M.R. DeHaan on the radio. You remember M.R. DeHaan? He used to have a radio broadcast. Maybe the broadcast is still in existence. Back to God? No, not Back to God Hour. Can't think of the name of it. Bible Class of the Air was the name. He, he died and his son took over, and I think even his son is dead now. But he was preaching on this text once, M.R. DeHaan. And he couldn't understand that very well. Couldn't understand that on the one hand, Christ never sinned and was without sin. And yet on the other hand, he was touched with the feeling of our infirmity. So he said, the explanation for that text is this, that Christ had two persons. The divine person couldn't sin. The human person could sin. And that was the conflict in Christ's life between the divine person and the human person. What he was apparently unaware of was that that very explanation was way, way back in the fourth century called the error of Nestorianism and it was condemned by the church at the Council of Ephesus in 381. Christ was one person the eternal, unchangeable person of the Son of God, though he united in his person two natures, the human and the divine, he was nevertheless one person. To say, therefore, that Christ could sin, though he didn't, is a denial of the truth of the Scriptures. God cannot sin. So we must, of course, recognize that there is mystery here. Nevertheless, 
Christ understands the suffering which we endure. Sympathetically, he does. He doesn't look on us with cold wrath when we struggle with temptation. He understands, he knows, he endured the same thing himself. He's sympathetic, therefore, and so the apostle says, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace for two reasons. One is that we may obtain mercy. He is ready to bestow upon us his mercy. And the second is, and that we may find grace to help in time of need. So even that aspect of our sufferings, Christ also suffered. Same thing is true of Christ enduring the wrath of God. We do too. There's nothing more awful than when because of our sins we know the wrath of God. And you know how, how agonizingly the psalmist cried out, In thy wrath and hot displeasure chasten not thy servant, Lord. Christ knew God's wrath. We do too. And because God's wrath is what it is, the most terrifying thing also for us that finally brings us to our knees. We also know what it means to be abandoned by God as Christ was abandoned. After all, Psalm 22, though it was the crossword of our Savior on Calvary, was David's too. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's David praying. He's praying prophetically, but he's praying nevertheless out of the depths of his own experience, knowing that God had forsaken him. Oh, I know. And we learn that too. In his forsakenness of Christ, God loved Christ. And in his forsaken that we endure. He loves us. He causes us to experience the horror of our sins by hiding his face, common expression in the Psalms. Why hidest thou thy face, O God? I cry to thee, and thou hearest not. Is it because thou art on a far journey and cannot hear my cries? Is it because thou art sleeping? Awake, O God, and come to my aid. Those are cries that come out of a despairing heart that knows what it means to be abandoned by God. My point is that we share in all aspects of the sufferings of Christ in our own life. Not atoning that is for us impossible. Christ bore the wrath of God and atoned for sin. But because he did that for us and because we are united to Christ by faith and are part of him and receive everything that belongs to him,
Not only the fullness of the salvation which he earned for us, but the suffering as well, don't you see, as a way to that salvation. For Christ, the way of the cross leads home, as the poet had it. For us, too, the way of the cross leads home. I must needs go home by the way of the cross. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, because it's your cross, but my cross, which I have made yours, and which you must carry. That is the fundamental reason why suffering is sanctifying in the life of the child of God. Any questions on this? Yes, Henry. We read that the suffering of the present time cannot be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us hereafter as our great comfort. Oh, yes. Henry makes the remark that, he quotes 2 Corinthians 4, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that awaits us, and that that's our comfort. Indeed, remember that's true for us, because it was true of Christ. The glory that awaited Christ could not compare with the suffering which he endured. And indeed, the glory that he received was because of his faithfulness in suffering. And the glory we receive is because of our sufferings. Our sufferings work our salvation. Yes. Rod. At the question is, and Rod refers to Colossians 1, I'm not sure what text it is, where Paul makes the comment that the sufferings which he endured in the flesh are sufferings which he endured on behalf of the church and by means of which he filled up that which was left behind of the afflictions of Christ. Here it is. Where have I, Paul, am made a minister, that is, the gospel, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you. There you have it, see, as Christ suffered for the church. And fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. Christ suffered affliction for his church, for his body's sake. He did not suffer all that it was possible to suffer, Paul says. There is some suffering left behind, not the suffering of the wrath of God 
that was poured out upon Christ as the punishment of sin. He left nothing of that behind. If he did and we have to suffer, then we're back in Roman Catholicism and its doctrine of purgatory. Purgatory is suffering to pay for sin. Paul does not mean that, but he does mean to say that Christ's sufferings, the suffering of persecution, the suffering of the battles with temptation, the suffering of the hatred even of his own kind, his own people. He came unto his own and his own received him not. The suffering of the unbelief of his own disciples. He left some of that behind. He did not suffer those things as much as he could because he saved some for his church. That's the meaning of Colossians. That's a, that's a marvelous text and precisely teaches what I've been trying to say. Absolutely, yes. Yes, that's why he did. He left behind some of his own sufferings because it's his own ultimate final suffering to pay for sin. That was a part of the whole picture of his sufferings. And that now he gives us the privilege of enjoying, if I may use that word, with him, of enduring maybe would be better, but with him. The privilege is suffering with Christ. That's Romans 8 too, you know. I don't think uh, Ryan read quite that far because Romans 8 gets in a little bit different subject. Uh, let's see, yeah. This, uh, he's talking about the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Yeah, children of God, as Christ is the eternal Son of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him. And we are the heirs, if we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. Suffering to glory. Yes. Henry. Henry refers to Matthew 5 and the last of the Beatitudes. That's correct. They're blessed. It's a blessing because it's suffering with Christ, you see. That's right. Eric.
Eric's question is, was there not something unique about the suffering of Christ that is not in any respect characteristic of our sufferings? That was the gist of it. it that, you're not only correct, Eric, but that has got to be maintained. This is one reason why I'm so hesitant to speak of these things because I, I, I don't want to be misunderstood. You mentioned that one aspect of the uniqueness of Christ's suffering was that he was the eternal son of God. That's the heart and core of it. He suffered as the son of God. And we can only begin to understand the magnitude of that. A little child whose father is angry with him. If he loves his father, he can't stand that. He can't stand to have his father angry with him. Because he loves his father and he needs his father's love. So if you send a little child like that to his room, Angrily send him, go to your room, You're, you've been naughty. And pretty soon he'll come sneaking out, quietly, frightened too. And he'll lay his hand on his dad's arm and he'll say, Daddy, do you love me? He can't, he can't stand that. Imagine Christ, the eternal Son of God, whose father poured out the fury of his wrath upon him. That was unique, absolutely unique. Furthermore, because that suffering was unique, he suffered in this respect also in a unique way, that he bore the wrath of God against sin, who himself knew no sin. Doesn't Paul use that expression in 2 Corinthians 5? He who knew no sin was made, I think that's the word Paul uses, you can look it up. He who knew no sin was made sin for us, that the righteousness of God might be imputed to us. It's absolutely unique. So Christ bore the wrath of God as the Son of God, who himself had no sin, to make his suffering of the wrath of God an atoning sacrifice, which our suffering can never, never be. We never atone. We have the perfect sacrifice of Christ. The Roman Catholics always denied that perfection and completion of the sacrifice of Christ and the reformers, which is reflected in our catechism too, we're intent on driving that point home. Everything we need is in that cross. Everything that pertains to our salvation. Nothing is lacking. So yes, and it's a distinction we have to keep in mind. Otherwise, as I say, we're gonna have to go along with the Roman Catholics on their doctrine of purgatory. I still have to pay for my sins somehow, or my suffering makes atonement for my sin. Oh no, if it would, we'd be in hell. Anyone else? Yes, Rod? Oh, when the 
Yeah, right, right. Uh, Canons 2, 3, I think it is. But you have to understand the language of the canons there, or remember it. The canons say, I don't think this is exactly the uh, uh, precise quote, but because of the dignity of the one who suffered, his sufferings were sufficient for the whole world. Because he was the Son of God in our flesh. That gave the value that the sufferings of Christ had. That word sufficiency has been horribly abused and it has become the basis for the teaching of universal atonement. The fathers aren't saying that. The Arminians said to the fathers, you teach particular redemption, you, you do injustice to the cross. You say the cross is, is uh, limited, limited atonement. Limited, that Christ did not do all he could have done. The fathers say, no. As far as the dignity of his person is concerned, the suffering of Christ was sufficient for the whole world. But, and then in, in 2.8, they go on to say, but he died only for, he died for the elect, and then it adds that expression, and for them only. That seals it. When the Westminster Confession, about 15 or 20 years later, talked about the death of Christ, they didn't dare to put that in. They said he died for the elect, but they did not dare to say, and for them only. And the reason was because they had a bunch of Amaraldians on the Synod who wanted a universal atonement. So yes, that's canons. We also read, we sing it. Right. All the suffering that he did. It was a joy. Yeah. For Christ. Yeah. Psalm 40. That's right. Yep. I come to do thy will, O God. In the volume of the book it is written of me. Yes. Don't have a lot of time left, but there's a time to make a few points yet. I'm going to give you a, an assignment tonight that I ask you to do between tonight's class and next week's class. And that is to get your copy of the three forms of unity, this one or the, the green book if you have it, and read the following articles in the Confessions. First of all, Lord's Day 33 speaks of the conversion of man. Read it and ponder it. You can read triple knowledge on it if you will, but be sure you understand its meaning. We're gonna be talking about that quite a bit. Second one I want you to read. You don't have to read them necessarily in this order. The Belgian Confession, Article 24, which has to do of man's sanctification and good works. 
in my opinion, one of the most beautiful articles in the whole of the Belgic Confession. And the third one is from the Canons of Dort. And I'd like to have you read Articles 11, 12, 13, and 14. 11 through 14 of the Canons of Dort. The reason I want you to read those is because they are the confessional uh, statements on the doctrine of sanctification. And what I want you particularly to do, and it would be nice if you would do this by jotting down a few notes, notice that when the uh, confessions speak of sanctification, They use different terms for that. Uh, canons, for example, Canons 3, 4, 12 uses the word regeneration. And so does Article 24, the Belgic Confession. Regeneration. And sanctification means in the confessions the same thing. Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 33 calls sanctification conversion. So you've got sanctification, regeneration, and conversion. And they all refer to the same work of God. And in fact, you will understand or you will discover if you read these articles carefully and pay some close attention to them, that all of these three not only are spoken of as referring to the same work of God, but are all continuous works of God. They go on throughout life. Lord's Day 33 speaks of the need of daily conversion. Regeneration in Article 24 is described as something that takes place every time we hear the preaching of the gospel, which is all our life long. Sanctification is the same thing. So what I would like to have you do is, is study those and answer next time, and you can use my notes insofar in as I deal with the subject, why is that? Why is that that our confessions speak of all three as referring to the same thing, the same work of God? Is there no difference between these three? That's the question which I would like to have you answer. So that's your assignment. I can't ask you to hand in your papers, I, I think, next week so that I can mark them, but I'd like to have you uh, come up with some ideas on that question next time. I want to conclude our, oh, I'm sorry, Ag. Will you collect the papers and mark them? Three, four. I'm sorry, didn't I say that? Three, four, 11 through 14. And be sure you read 14 too. Because although 14 does not speak of this, it speaks of faith. And so does Article 24 in the, in the Confession of Faith. 
and speaks of faith in connection with all of these. So be sure you read that too. Faith fits in here too. Okay, now I want to spend the time that remains for us. Let me say this first of all, I think that uh, next week, the Lord willing, we're going to be talking about what Paul calls the struggle that goes on in the Christian as he defines it in Romans 7. We're going to be paying very close attention to Romans 7 next week. So I, if you uh, don't forget, I'd like to have you read those verses too, the last verses of Romans 7. Um, Verses, especially verses 14 through 25 of Romans 7. We're going to be talking about those verses next time. And then in our last session, two weeks from tonight, we're going to talk about specific ways in which suffering works our sanctification. We're going to be paying close attention to 2 Corinthians 4 last verses of 2 Corinthians 4, the last 10 verses or so. So that's our plan, the Lord willing. Now I wanted to conclude tonight with some remarks about various denials of sanctification, various corruptions of the doctrine of sanctification. First one that I want to call to your attention is the doctrine of Rome. I said at the beginning of tonight's class that Rome confused, or I don't know about confused, but identified justification with sanctification. And it did that for a very specific purpose. And, uh, and so left room for its basic Pelagianism. Rome said this, that the doctrine this is teaching in the, in, in the uh, official confessions of Rome, the canons of uh, the decrees of the Council of Trent. Rome said that baptism works in such a way in all who are baptized that original sin is taken away. I remember, brings to mind an experience I had years ago. I, th I may have still been a student, I don't know, but I was coming on the train from Hull, Iowa to Chicago. The Sioux, the Sioux Arrow, they call that. Hull used to have a train depot. And it was a kind of a bummel of a train, but it did get you to Chicago if you had a lot of patience. Well, in those days, in, the, in the, the coaches, there was a room in the back of the coach that was called the smoker. And that's where all the excitement was, in the smoker, because that's where usually the men gathered, whether they smoked or not, but many of them did. 
And invariably in these smokers, the conversation would first be rather dilatory about the weather and then there would be a few remarks here and there about politics and then every time the conversation would turn to religion. And we had some humdinger of arguments in the, in the smoker of the train. All kinds of people, atheists, agnostics. I can remember one time I argued from Iowa City to Chicago with the Netherlands Reform Minister about the well-meant offer of the gospel. But this time there were a couple of young men in the smoker who were Roman Catholics. And uh, I don't know how the conversation came about, but these Roman Catholics denied that the Roman Catholic Church taught original sin and guilt. And I knew that they were mistaken, but they were adamant. They were seminary students. They knew. Okay. Well, I had seen a priest a couple of coaches down, so I said to these students, I'm going to get that priest, and I'm going to get him in here, and I'm going to have him set you straight. So I went to the coach and told the priest, there's a couple of students from the seminary of your church and the smoker there, and uh, I'd like to have you set them straight. So he, he willingly came along, and I said to that priest, Did these, these students don't believe that the Roman Catholic Church teaches original sin and guilt. And he looked at me and he said, do you mean to tell me that an innocent baby who has never done anything wrong goes to hell? And I thought, oh brother, he doesn't even believe it himself. So I was stuck. So I said to him, at <laughs> the end of debate, you know, what are you gonna do? So I said to him, when you go home, you read the decrees of the Council of Trent, and you will discover that in the decrees of the Council of Trent, the doctrine of original guilt and original sin is taught. I don't know if he ever did it. But they do. They hold to these. But, and maybe that's what he meant, I don't know, but they say that baptism takes away original guilt and original sin. Everyone baptized is freed from original guilt and original sin by virtue of the power that is inherent in the water of baptism. That puts man in a position where he is able to choose for himself whether he will believe in Christ or whether he will not. Or in other words, it puts man in a state where he has a free will that washing away of original sin and uh, original guilt is, said Rome, the infusion of righteousness. That's justification. The infusion of righteousness which puts a man in a position to decide whether or not he will be saved. That's why, why by the way, some of our mothers years ago had problems if they had their babies in St. Mary's Hospital because if they didn't make a point of it, those babies were baptized by Roman Catholics in that hospital without the knowledge or consent of the mothers. So they had to be on their toes and inform the staff, don't baptize my baby, I'll see to it that it's baptized. But th this is the reason. 
the baby had to get a, be given a chance to be saved. Final justification is pronounced by God only after a man not only has faith in Christ, but performs works. And there's the Roman Catholic doctrine of justification by faith and works. Now that's a very simple sketch of the Roman Catholic system. That's what Luther despised when he came to know the truth of the scriptures. And that became the battle cry of the Reformation, justification by faith alone. Don't you see, don't you see that this is exactly what's happening in the federal vision theology? Everyone baptized is given the promise of God. Some go so far as to say, Every baptized child is elect. Every baptized child is sanctified. Every baptized child is justified. Then he has to fulfill the conditions that are necessary because if he doesn't, he can still fall away and lose his election and lose his sanctification and lose his justification. That's the federal vision. Openly, blatantly, it's no wonder that these people who hold to the federal vision flock by the hundreds back to Rome. I would too. If that were actually the teaching of the scriptures, it's a dreadful, dreadful doctrine. But that's Rome's teaching. It's the denial of sanctification. Another denial of sanctification is antinomianism or antinomism, as it's sometimes called. Anti means against. And nomism comes from a word that means law. They're against the law. That is, the antinomians take the position that if a man is justified freely by grace alone through faith in Christ, he doesn't have to do good works. In fact, it may be harmful for him to do good works because Christ has done the perfect work. And our works are never perfect. And if we try to insist on our works, we only make the work of Christ of less value than it is set forth to be in the scriptures. Antinomism is a deadly evil. It plagued the Lutheran Reformation under the influence of Jacob Agricola, who led a sizable element from the Lutherans into that error. It was an error in the uh, in the uh, Presbyterian Church of Scotland in the sixth century, antinomism. Paul talks about it already, Romans 6, when he gets finished with the grand doctrine of justification by faith. What shall we say then? Shall we sin that grace may abound? That's antinomism. Maybe in its extreme form, but it is. And that has been a problem in the church always. Even in our churches, I remember vividly 
preaching a sermon on Lord's Day. What is it? Why must we do good works? When afterwards one of the older saints came to me and said to me, Reverend, that was a nice sermon, but I can't do any good works. I'm totally depraved. To which my answer was, no, you're not. You must do good works. You are not totally depraved. You must not say that. He was startled by that. And there were those in our churches who held that position. They were troublesome. There is also a kind of a practical antinomism that sometimes is found among, well, I would almost say among some of our young people, but I don't think that's necessarily true. A practical antinomism. I'm Protestant Reformed. I've been baptized. I made confession of faith. I graduated from Heritage Protestant Reformed Christian School. I can therefore live as I please, and God will forgive my sin. If you put it to them straight, is this really what you believe? Then they'll hedge, of course. But they live that way, unabashedly and shamelessly. They live that way. As if their justification and membership in the church and baptism and the rest gives them a license to live as they please. That's an error in the doctrine of sanctification, and it denies what we had on the board a little while ago, that justification has to be followed by sanctification. And that's Romans 6. Shall we then sin that grace may abound? God forbid! Know ye not that ye who were crucified with Christ were buried with him and are now risen unto a new and holy life? Or in other words, if you want to change Paul's words, that's impossible that a man who is justified say, says, I'll continue to live in sin. I'm justified. That's impossible. If he says that, he's not justified because a justified person who appropriates by faith the righteousness of Christ says, I must do good works. That's what he says. I must. So that's a serious error. We have to be on our guard against that. Be on our guard against that in our own lives and in our own families. Another error in, in the doctrine of justification is perfectionism. This characterizes a lot of Pentecostalism, characterizes the holiness movement, it appeals to people, of course. A man can attain, a saint, a child of God, can attain perfection in this life. I think I have a note of it in the outline that Burkauer in his book on sanctification calls attention to a case that Dr. Abram Kuyper refers to in his book 
his commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism, A Voto Dordoracino, in which Kuiper says he knew a man who in a, in, a, in a congregation in the Netherlands got up on the pulpit one Sunday in a Reformed church, mind you, and he said, I, I have the pleasure of announcing to you, beloved, that I'm celebrating an anniversary today. And if you would like to know what that anniversary is, it is this, that it is exactly one year ago today that I quit sinning. I have not sinned in the last year. So that idea of perfectionism apparently pops up even in Reformed churches, although uh, it's not very, uh, very common among us, if at all. It's almost always found in Arminian circles. John Wesley in his Wesleyan revivals was a perfectionist. They don't mean to say that every sanctified child of God attains perfection in this life, but they do mean to say that it's possible. It's possible, maybe with effort, but it is possible to become perfect. Over against all that perfectionism, our catechism, our Heidelberg Catechism raises a wall and says, no, no, no. And there are two statements particularly in the catechism which are the death knell of all perfectionism. We have only, the catechism says, a small beginning of the new obedience. A small beginning. I want to talk about that small beginning next week, the Lord willing. And the other is in connection with the doctrine of justification and the charge that and the defense of the doctrine that justification is by faith alone without the works of the law. Our works, says the catechism, can never be part of our justification for our best works are corrupted and polluted with sin. That's a stinging indictment of all our good works. In Article 24 in the Netherlands Confession, you will discover, speaks also of the fact that our good works can never be the ground of our justification and that indeed if we tried to make them such, our poor consciences would be continuously vexed unless we fix our hope only in the cross of Christ. Very beautiful. So all those errors that have appeared in the church are, are rejected by us. Sanctification. Sanctification means we must do good works, says the Heidelberg Catechism. Not only we can do good works, we must do good works. So that's an interesting topic, and we'll discuss that next week, the Lord willing. We have to quit now. Thank you for your attention. And please do your assignment. That'll make next week's class the better. Thank you for listening to this message. It is our hope that it was edifying to you. Please subscribe to our podcast. We publish daily meditations. 
Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day Sermons on Wednesdays, and topical podcasts on Fridays. You can find more information about us at our website, hopeprchurch.org, and you can email us with any questions or feedback at hoperwc at gmail.com. Thank you.